My name is Beth Hale. I'm a partner at CM Murray and I have with me Sarah Chilton, another partner at CM Murray, and also John Manis, who's the director of business tax services at Smith & Williamson. And John's joining us really kindly today to talk through some of the tax issues that we're coming across in relation to the furlough scheme, the job retention scheme and other issues that are arising for employees and employers in relation to the coronavirus. So just to give you a quick run through of what we're going to cover today. We're going to talk through the job retention scheme, what is furlough, what's involved, what are the some of the technicalities around that and how it works. If we have time, we will also talk about redundancies, what the collective redundancy process looks like, what an individual redundancy process looks like. And we'll also touch briefly on the, on the self-employed scheme and what that protection is looking like and how people can benefit from that. As I say, if you have any questions, let us know. And some people have sent questions in advance and we'll try and cover those as we go through. So I'm just going to pass to Sarah, first of all, to talk about furlough, this new word that we've all had to learn over the last couple of weeks and just talk about the basics and what, what's, not that any of it's basic, but the key points and what people need to know. Thanks, Beth. So furlough really relates to the coronavirus job retention scheme, which the government announced on the 20th of March in an attempt to mitigate some of the significant impacts that employees were feeling and employers as a result of the impact of the coronavirus on uh, the workplace. So the main impacts were, I suppose, twofold. One is an economic downturn, and that has an impact on the work available for employees and the profitability of that work and the profitability of businesses and therefore their ability to keep staff on. But there was also a much more direct impact different to that which we've seen before in other economic situations. We had a situation where lots of people just simply could not do their jobs. They either couldn't work from home or their jobs just didn't exist for a period of time. You know, for example, people that may be working in service sectors that are not designated as key workers uh, simply couldn't go to work and couldn't perform their roles. So the scheme was introduced to try and go some way to relieving some of the economic hardship that a large number of the population and businesses were going to suffer. It was introduced along with a package of other measures by the government aimed at helping businesses particularly, so things like deferral VAT payments and relief on things like business rates for certain sectors, which we won't go into today, but there is a sort of other package of measures available. And if you haven't gone on the government website to have a look at that, then we would suggest that you have a look at what's available for your business to help. Turning to the coronavirus job retention scheme, I suppose, first of all, what is that scheme? Well, it's a scheme introduced by the government which enables employers to designate employees as furloughed workers, meaning that they don't provide that employee with work, that employee does not perform any work, and during that period of furlough, the employee gets paid 80% of their normal pay, so that's their basic pay, excluding things like a bonus commission um, over time or £2,500. So it's capped out at £2,500. And in practice, what that means is for employees who are earning about £37,000 and less, they will get 80% of their actual pay. And for people above that limit of about £37,000, and I'm sure John will jump in if my sums are incorrect, they will end up really hitting that cap of £2,500. So it's a scheme which doesn't offer complete solutions for a number of more highly paid employees, but will allow employers to 
do what is quite a significant kind of help to employees who are in that 37,000 or less because they will suffer, yes, a 200% drop in pay, but they will keep their jobs. And it's important to think about it, I suppose, as an alternative to redundancy. So from an employer's perspective, redundancy is not a cheap thing to do, particularly if your downturn is likely to be short term, because particularly for employees who've got longer service, you need to pay statutory redundancy in some cases, enhanced redundancy, and that has a significant financial impact for a business. Whereas this allows you to basically stop paying the employees out of your own pocket to the extent that you you put them on the furlough scheme and not pay them redundancy and also keep them employed so that when things get better, they are there, they are the people that you have spent time investing in and training and they can immediately come back to work. In terms of a few of the eligibility criteria for furlough, so the employer must have been operating a PAYE system at the 20th of February 2020, and the employees who can be furloughed must have been on the payroll at the 20th of February 2020. In terms of any backdating, so you've probably heard that you can backdate furlough to the 1st of March. So what that means in practice is that if, for example, you made someone redundant, but they were still in your employment on the 28th of February, but either they left your employment subsequent to them, or perhaps they haven't even left yet because they're still working out their period of notice, you can effectively undo that redundancy by agreement with the employee, and then instead rehire them and designate them as furloughed. It is probably also the case, although this isn't actually clear because it's not been addressed in any of the guidance that we've looked at from the government, But it's probably also the case that if you had people who were simply not doing any work for you during the period before furlough was introduced, but who also satisfy that qualifying criteria, so they were employed on the 28th of February, and you had a PAYE scheme on the 20th of February, you could potentially furlough them and effectively reclaim from the government pay you have already paid up to the 80%. But it's not, as I say, 100% clear because that's not been specifically addressed. But I would say that that's something that employers should be thinking about if they did have people who were doing nothing, but who they were paying 100%. In terms of reclaiming, the employer reclaims 80% of the pay up to £2,500 a month, plus employers' national insurance contributions and plus the minimum auto-enrolment pension contributions that employers must make in respect to their employees. So they can reclaim both of those things. And John will talk in a little bit about the net and gross impact of furlough and what provision is in relation to the tax on the pay that the employee actually gets. Further, one more thing just to say before I hand over to John, it's in relation to the length of time that someone can be furloughed. So there's a minimum length of time that an employee can be furloughed, and that is three weeks. And so what we think that means, although it's not been addressed specifically in guidance, but it's equally not been ruled out in guidance, is that you could furlough an employee for three weeks and then I don't know if I'm inventing a word, de-furlough them or unfurlough them for a period of time. And then you could re-furlough them for three weeks. But every time you furlough them, you have to do it for a minimum of three weeks. And I suppose what that might enable some employers to do is be more flexible about how they use furlough. So for example, a number of people have asked us, what do I do if I've got, say, a team of four people, but I've only got work for two of them? It doesn't seem fair to me to furlough two of them and keep two of them on 100% pay. So you'll then have in that situation, you'll have someone getting paid 100% doing 100% of the work, and you'll have someone doing no work getting paid 80%. Now, not everyone will think that that's a fair deal. Some people will want to be sitting at home doing nothing for 80%. Some people will want to be working and getting paid 100%. 
And if you can flip furlough around, say for three weeks for one employee, three weeks for another, that would allow you to potentially do that to make that more equitable between the team that you might have to be furloughing. If, for example, you have got enough work for some people, but not enough work for everyone. Of course, in a number of situations, we've seen clients who've simply had to furlough entire workforces or entire departments. And obviously that's not going to be a consideration for them. We will come back in a little while to talk about some of the more complicated issues which arise relating to furloughs, so around holiday pay, maternity pay and leave. But before I do that, I'm going to just hand over to John, who's just going to take us through some of the key tax and payroll aspects of furlough and also kind of the practical things that you need to do to designate employees as furloughed and interactions with HMRC to the extent, obviously, that we have that information based on the limited information we do have at the moment from the government. Thanks very much. I mean, first of all, just to confirm what you said about the numbers, which is um, the amount you get from the government is 80% of the employee's pay up to a maximum of two and a half thousand a month. But then in addition to either 80% or two and a half thousand, you get employer national insurance on that sum, plus the minimum level of pension contributions that uh, you're required to make. I mean, if you're uh, voluntarily making pension contributions in excess of uh, the statutory minimum, then you can continue doing that, but you won't get the money back from the government. Um, in tax terms, the way it's treated is the pay, I mean, essentially nothing really changes. I mean, employees are just paid through the payroll as normal, and then tax and national insurance are deducted in, in the normal way from either the two and a half thousand or 80% of their previous pay or, or whatever they're getting. There's not really any change there. Of course, on top of that, though, you, you will then get the money back from the government and how that's treated for tax terms. It's treated as if it were revenue from your business. It's replacing the revenue you would otherwise have made without coronavirus. Uh, and so it would be included on companies and businesses tax returns in the normal way as if it were trading revenue but then you would be able to get a tax deduction for salary and national insurance costs that you're, you're paying with the tax. I'll just pick up then on those points. Actually, we've got a question about furloughing someone on the rotation scheme. So the potential to rotate people that are furloughed. I mean, I, I hope I'm not guessing too much into the future because we don't know if that will work or won't work, but there's nothing to tell us it won't work. So uh, that's the basis on which I'm proceeding. So the question is, if one of the team goes off sick and you're short-staffed, can you break the furlough? I think the answer is, as um, has been predicted by the person asking the question, no, you probably can't break the furlough because it won't satisfy that minimum period of three weeks. So I think you will, in that context, be stuck. I'm going to come on to talk about holiday, actually. So we've had another question about holiday. I was going to talk about holiday and then also sick pay and maternity pay and leave. So I'll take, first of all, the, the point about sick pay because it's pretty straightforward. So if someone is on sick leave now, either because they're sick or they're self-isolating, then you cannot commence a period of furlough until that person is back. So wait until that sick leave is concluded. Continue to pay them sick pay as you would normally, whether that's just statutory or whether that's statutory and contractual sick pay. And then once they are back, Back from sick leave then you are able to furlough that employee. In terms of maternity the rights which have already accrued and rights which apply to employees are specifically stated to be 
unaffected by furlough. What that means essentially is that if you have employees who are due to go on maternity leave, their rights will not be impacted by furlough to the extent that they have already crystallised. For a number of people, you might be aware of how maternity leave and pay works. But in essence, there comes a point in someone's pregnancy where their pay is sort of crystallised for the purposes of calculating maternity pay. And irrespective of what happens with pay after that point, whether it goes up or down, that pay remains the same. That point for anyone who is dealing with this in practice is 15 weeks before the expected week of childbirth. And then the pay is the average weekly pay from the eight week period preceding that 15 week point. So you count 15 weeks back and then you count a further eight weeks back and you take that eight week period and you average it out. So what will happen in practice is that a number of people who are going on maternity leave in the next two months, which will be effectively the period that this scheme is alive so far, and let's hope that's all we need it for, their maternity pay will already have been established because it will relate to a period probably January, February of this year, for example, that would be for someone due broadly at the end of May. The furlough scheme will not impact upon the maternity pay that those people get. So you'll have a strange situation where your employee might be furloughed now, go on to 80% pay, and then during maternity leave would actually get paid 90% pay for those first six weeks of mat leave. But those rights are unaffected so far as the guidance tells us at the present time. What the guidance says is that, and I think this is what this is part of what's confusing people, is that being on furlough may affect the level of their maternity pay, which is right insofar as someone is furloughed during that eight week reference period during which their pay for maternity purposes is calculated. But if someone is already past their qualifying week and therefore has already accrued that entitlement to maternity pay, then their pay is kind of is fixed essentially. So they should then receive their full maternity pay based on their pay during the reference period. Suppose what it might impact is contractual maternity pay, depending on how your contractual scheme works. Yeah. Maybe that is what it refers to. It's true that it may impact if, yeah. if you're furloughed during a reference period. So it's just I think that that sort of slightly vague may is confusing people a bit. So probably then to just add further to confusion, I'll talk about holiday pay. <laughs> debate at the moment about holidays. The main question I suppose is, does holiday accrue during furlough or not? It is not clear. The guidance doesn't say one way or another. And what a number of people and what we thought might be the case was that it maybe did accrue. And the reason for that is because, well, we're not told it doesn't accrue. And because holiday does accrue on other types of statutory leave. For example, holiday accrues when you are on sick leave, holiday accrues when you're on maternity leave, and holiday accrues when you're on layoff. Layoff is where you temporarily stop providing work to an employee, temporarily stop paying them. It's used in economic downtime circumstances. In case anyone's getting ideas about doing that instead, it's used typically only when you have a contractual right to do it. And there's limits on the number of weeks you can lay someone off, four weeks if it's continuous or six weeks if it's not continuous. So it's not a a realistic alternative, I think, in these circumstances to furlough for either employee or employer. So holiday leave in those types of leaves does continue to accrue. So it was thought that potentially furlough would be the same, but actually it's been flagged by a number of employment lawyers and commentators over the last 24 hours that there's quite a reasonable argument that under case law, which we won't go into because it would bore us all to death, I think, actually leave shouldn't accrue during this type of furlough because in fact the employee's not doing any work. 
I mean, I suppose it's not helpful for us to say that the position is unclear. And without additional guidance, I don't think anyone's going to necessarily know exactly what should and shouldn't be done with holiday leave. And I suppose what we'd say from a practical perspective is keep a record of the holiday, keep a record of what would have accrued, and hopefully we will get some guidance on that. And if you then end up having to give those employees holiday that they accrued during furlough, then you know what's accrued and you're sort of ready to go and do that. In the alternative, if you don't, then you don't. And in terms of communications with employees around that, I would be probably saying to them that your holiday may not continue to accrue during furlough, but that we will confirm that as soon as we're able to do, which I know is not great from an employment law perspective. But at the moment, I think it's just not clear enough for anyone to say categorically. And I think given that there's a risk that it doesn't continue to accrue, what you don't want to do is commit yourself to having that accrue and to giving that benefit to employees when they are furloughed. The other point about holiday arises from the rollover of holiday. So new regulations are coming out uh, which effectively confirm that where an employee cannot take their accrued holiday leave for reasons relating to coronavirus, so it's not just restricted to furlough. So that could be because they're sick, because they're self-isolating or because they're furloughed or for other reasons, for example, which are different but maybe reasonable. If it's not reasonably practicable for an employee in those circumstances to take their annual leave, they can roll that over, where in other circumstances they wouldn't be able to do that. There is a bit of a debate, again, as to whether or not that rollover is the four weeks of EU annual leave that employees get, um, or whether that's the 5.6 weeks which employees get under the working time regulations in the UK. Probably the safest option is to allow people to roll over the entire amount but I would hope that if we can all escape from this lockdown in sort of June, July time, if not before, then there maybe wouldn't be the need to roll over that amount of leave. And hopefully most employees will be encouraged to take some leave in the second half of the year. Updated their guidance on rollover of holiday pay and have said that in, in relation to these new regulations, and they have indicated that being on furlough is a good reason for not taking your leave and therefore being allowed to roll it over. And I think I would just reiterate what Sarah says about the debate raging on whether holiday accrues during furlough. I think opinion is really divided and there are very learned people who come down on both sides of the argument. I think we have to hope that the government will give some kind of firm view on it quite soon because I think it's causing an awful lot of confusion, particularly because there's also a question around whether bank holidays accrue and obviously we've got two bank holidays coming up next week. And so I think that it's a real gap in the guidance and I think it's going to be really important for employers and employees to sort that out as quickly as possible. We've had a question about whether you can compel employees to take leave while they're on furlough. So I think that again depends a bit on whether there is whether you can take leave on furlough at all. I think ordinarily you can depending partly on your employment contract but under the pure terms of the working time regulations you can compel employees to take leave provided you give them the right kind of notice and whether you can do that when they're on furlough will depend on the outcome of the analysis on whether leave continues to accrue at all i mean if anyone follows any employment lawyers on twitter there's a debate as i say raging about the accrued holiday issue so i think it's a really really live one which i think i'm hopeful we'll get some guidance on pretty quickly I mean, I think that covers the issues I was going to speak about in relation to leave. Um, a couple of other points just to mention. 
I don't think, um, I'm going to put this question back to John because I don't think we covered it, but correct me if I'm wrong, which is to do with how you calculate pay. So, you know, if someone is on a zero hours contract or they're on variable contract or they've not been employed for a full year, how do you know what you're taking 80% of? So I think, I think the, there's a very specific uh, mechanism that they've set out in the guidance on this. If you've got an employee whose pay varies, if they've been employed for 12 months before the claim, then essentially what you can do is you can look at the same month in, in the previous 12 months from the previous year and just take that. Uh, or alternatively, you can take average monthly earnings if that's higher. If they've been employed for less than a year, then you can just claim for an average of monthly earnings since they started. We have come across people who are only sort of very casual workers who are only paid on a weekly basis. And, and the guidance just doesn't say anything about that at all. Um, but if they're paid weekly, really what I would just do in practice is just try and extrapolate monthly figures from the data you have. Thank you. I was just going to cover two other points, which is that people have asked questions around whether or not someone can do any work or what rather work they can do whilst they're on furlough. And I was just going to say on that, that people can volunteer and they can do training. Beth's going to talk about what work they might be able to do is a bit unclear but I'm just going to talk first of all about training so someone can be asked to participate in training provided they are actually paid the national minimum wage for any hours that they end up doing the training so you can have someone do training so upskill your workforce or make sure that they're up to date with regulatory issues or any other sort of training that you might want to do obviously having regard to appropriate health and safety and it might be really obvious to say this but like not doing group training sessions at this present time and there's also then the question as to you know what work is work in terms of we've been told well you can't furlough someone and then give them work but there have been a lot of questions as well you know can I update my employer's Twitter account or can I check Instagram for the employer I do their social media or can I monitor an inbox and Beth I think you're just going to share some thoughts on what might be allowed and what might not be allowed. So I think the key point that they say is that they can take part in volunteer work. I take that to mean that volunteer work for other organisations rather than the employer themselves. And they can take part in training. But what they can't do is provide services to or generate revenue for or on behalf of the organisation. So I think any kind of fee earning substantive work which contributes to the commercial aims of the business, I think is out even if the employee is agreeing to do that for free. So you can't get round it, I don't think. And I think HMRC will clamp down on this. You can't get round it by saying, oh, but they've agreed to do this work for free, even though they're furloughed. So they're kind of volunteering for us. I don't think that works. If they're doing anything which might generate revenue for the organisation, I think that falls foul of the guidance. If someone has two jobs, so if someone is employed by two employers, they can be furloughed by one employer and remain working for the other and receive furlough pay for that period. But what is less clear is what they can do in relation to if they've got one job, they're furloughed by their one employer, and they then, while receiving that 80% of furlough pay from that one employer, they then go and get another job for another employer, whether they can do that and whether that is acceptable under the furlough scheme. I think there are a number of issues to sort of unpack there. The first one is often their employment contracts will prevent them from taking other work while they're employed. If that is the case, then anything they do might be in breach of contract. If their contract doesn't already have that term, I just query whether 
HMRC might say, well, it's slightly undermining the point of the scheme. If you are able to get work elsewhere, we're paying you 80% of your salary while you're furloughed and you're getting a full-time salary doing a different job. So I think the, the position, again, is not entirely clear. And I think it's something that should probably be reflected in furlough agreements and furlough documentation to say whether they are entitled to get another job. Because I think the risk for the employer if the employee goes off and gets another job is that they then won't be able to recover that money that they have paid to the, to the employee. I think it's very clear from the guidance that if someone already has two jobs that are separate, they can be furloughed from one and not the other. But I think the issue of them getting a separate job while furloughed is, is a little bit more complicated and less clear. There's a couple of other points that I was just going to pick up on that have arisen from questions that we've received. So the first one relates to if there's been a business transfer in a particularly relevant period. So this might come up for some people. It's probably hopefully not going to be that common, but the rules obviously require that you are employed as at the 28th of February to be eligible to be furloughed. But there is a potential situation where you're employed by employer A on the 28th of February, but let's say on the 15th of March, employer B takes over the business of employer A. And under the transfer of undertakings regulations, which are separate employment regulations, your employment automatically transfers to employer B. You have no say in that. That just happens. It's by operation of the law. That is what happens unless you object and resign. So you find yourself employed by employer A on the 28th of February and employed by employer B by the 15th of March. And then by the 30th of March, employer B wants to furlough. Now, I think at the moment, on the basis of what we know, that employee cannot be furloughed because they were not within the payroll of employer B as at the 28th of February. Having said that, I do think this is probably a bit of a gap that has just not been contemplated necessarily in the guidelines. You know, as you probably picked up, there's a number of things that are missing from the guidelines. And that's not necessarily a criticism. I mean, this has been rushed out about 20 times faster than any legislation we've ever seen before. But I don't think it can have been the intention for long-standing employees of a business to just simply be excluded because there was a business transfer. But I think technically speaking right now, that appears to be the case. And I would hope that we might also get clarity on that as well right where there will be lots of business transfers at this time because of the uncertainty and there will be mergers where a two transfer will apply as well and it yeah. would seem really strange if the government didn't fill that gap yeah i do wonder if if there is a two p transfer if it's possible to transfer payroll registration of the transfer or business to the transfer e-business and whether that would get you home uh, but I haven't really thought about it yet so that may not be right. It sounds like it'd be worth trying it anyway <laughs> and seeing if that might work and otherwise just trying to apply for furlough and see what happens because as mm. we've said it just seems to be a loophole that's not intentional. The other question that's come up a number of times is what happens in someone's probation period when they're furloughed and obviously probation is typically a contractual arrangement between employer and employee and it's stipulated in the contract of employment in a lot of contracts of employment it will say that we will confirm in writing that you pass probation and it will also give the employer the discretion to extend probation and usually that is not limited to particular circumstances it's quite wide discretion to do that and i think we would you that it would be reasonable to extend probation so let's say someone started on the 27th of february and has done a month's work of a three-month probation period and then is furloughed for the next two months i think it'd be reasonable to say to the employee that probation will be extended and then it will run for a further two months when they come back from furlough it'll come up quite a lot for people i think that are in that new job situation i mean we can take other questions on the sort of more 
complicated or quirky things about furlough as we go through. But I think for now, so that we can move on, I'm going to pass over to Beth, who's going to talk us through what employers should be doing in practice to consult with their employees to actually get to the point where they've got furlough agreements in place with those employees, minimising the risk of any potential claims coming out of that process. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, so I think the, the position is relatively straightforward where you have 19 or fewer employees being furloughed or being put on furlough. In those circumstances, it is simply a matter for individual consultation with those employees. Putting someone on furlough will almost always involve a change to their terms and conditions of employment because you're reducing their salary for that period. There are some circumstances in which if the employer wants to top up, and we haven't dealt with topping up yet, but it is open to employers to top up to 100% if they wish to do so, although there's no obligation on them to do that. And if they do that, then there is an argument that in fact the employment contract is not being changed in those circumstances because the employee is still getting full pay. Most employees don't have a, an actual right to work under their contract. So the fact that they are, while well, they do have a right to be paid, so the fact that they are not working is probably in most circumstances not a breach of contract and not a change to their terms and conditions of employment. There will be some situations in which that is not the case. So in, in, for example, professional services, employment or other, other jobs where relationships with third parties, relationships with clients and customers is really important. And therefore, someone could argue that being removed from the workplace, removed from the market is actually a breach of their contract. You will that then, then even if you're paying them full pay, there might still be a change to their terms and conditions, which you'll need to negotiate with them in the same way that you, for those types of people, can't put them on garden leave without agreeing it with them. So I think the safest position to take is to assume that there is going to be a change to their terms and conditions, which needs to be agreed with them, and that you would put that agreement with them in writing and have some key provisions in there to determine things like how the notice period, if you want to remove them from furlough, and that will be subject to the three-week minimum furlough period that Sarah referred to. But what the employer probably wants is, say, a week's notice on which they can pull them off furlough and bring them back into the workplace as and when business picks up. So you want a really clear document setting out what the rights are and what the provisions are and how it's all going to work. Where you're putting on furlough 20 or more people, the position is a bit more complicated. And that's because of the broad definition of redundancy under the collective redundancy consultation legislation. Essentially, redundancy for collective consultation purposes is any dismissal which is not related to the individual concerned or for a number of reasons, all of which are not so related. So what does that mean? Well, essentially what it means is if the alternative to furlough could be that all of these people lose their jobs or that they are made redundant or that they are dismissed and then rehired on the new terms so that there was a proposal or a, uh, an idea that they may lose their jobs in some way, then collective consultation obligations under the relevant legislation are potentially triggered. And I think that is a really complicating factor. And we did one of these sessions last week before the guidance came out and one of the things I said in that is I would be hopeful that the government would give guide would provide guidance saying that the collective consultation obligations are not triggered in relation to putting people on furlough they haven't done that and in fact they have expressly referred to the possibility of collective consultation in their guidance so I think that's a real difficulty for employers because the collective consultation obligations require employers to elect representatives if they don't already have appropriate representatives in their workforce 
and they require they put in place certain time limits so the change can't take effect until 30 days after the consultation commences if there are tw between 20 and 99 employees and 45 days where there are 100 or more employees and that obviously has a real impact on businesses where they are trying to put people onto furlough quickly to save money and to take advantage of the government scheme which is only at the moment due to last for three months from the first of march so i think if collective consultation does apply it's really problematic for employers not least because not complying with the collective consultation obligations or not getting it right brings with it some really onerous penalties which is a protective award of up to 90 days pay for all infected employees now there is a get out for collective consultation in relation to where there is what is called special circumstances under the legislation. There's quite a lot of case law about what, what constitutes special circumstances and there is some guidance in the legislation as well. Insolvency itself is not a special circumstance but sort of the situations which might trigger or might surround insolvency can be and i think we're pretty hopeful there's a there's a provision which says and i'm struggling to remember the exact wording but sarah will be able to chip in and tell me that i think there is a really good argument or there's likely to be a really good argument that the the current situation the coronavirus situation the suddenness with which it has all happened will constitute a special circumstance for those purposes yeah, so the wording is sudden disaster has been found in previous case law and I think we are in sudden disaster is my personal view but that might just be how it feels for most of us. There will be litigation about this, organisations likely to be litigation for this, for organisations where this is done and it's difficult and controversial so I think it's really unsatisfactory that we don't have an answer to that and, and we don't have a sort of clear guidance from the government because it's putting employers in really difficult situations. The other thing to think about when you're going through a consultation process whether that's an individual process or a collective process is thinking about who you select to put on furlough and how you do that. I think the key thing to say is, as you would with any redundancy process, not that this is a redundancy process, but look at it like a redundancy process. You should be selecting based on objective criteria and not on the basis of any protected characteristic um, or any discriminatory reason. And that sort of goes without saying, but there are just some things to think about. So, for example, you shouldn't be putting someone on furlough just because they have childcare responsibilities, which are making it difficult for them to work. You shouldn't be selecting people uh, because of a disability, um, although there, is some, there are some quirks around that in terms of reasonable adjustments and what you might do with people who, who do have a disability and it might be shielding for the purpose of the coronavirus legislation. But I think just really think about who you're selecting, how you're selecting and, and what kind of criteria you're applying. So did you have anything to add to that? Not on selection, no. I suppose the, the only other thing I would say is slightly off furlough, but on redundancy. So a number of employees are thinking instead about making people redundant. And I think the number of employers are thinking about doing this. And a number of employers are thinking about it because they're worried that to keep people on 80% whilst they're not doing any work is, is a gamble if in fact doesn't pay out in their particular circumstances and I think there is a little bit of concern around that I mean I think it may be the case that we don't actually get regulations on furlough we may just continue to get some guidance on the government website and I think employers probably do just have to rely on what's out there and what we're being told I mean it is straight from the government uh, and you know there's no reason to suspect that this will not operate albeit I appreciate that there will be those difficult loophole situations where we just don't have clarity but a number of employers will still be contemplating redundancy and 
a lot of the things that Beth has spoken about in relation to consultation apply equally to redundancy consultation as they do to furlough consultation, except that I think um, in doing any redundancy process, it will be relevant to consider if furlough is an alternative option. And I think to not consider and potentially not utilise furlough could render a redundancy unfair in present circumstances. So I do, you know, under normal redundancy law. So I just think if you are instead thinking we might just rather make people redundant, I would just exercise some caution before jumping straight to that in the context of considering alternatives to redundancy, which is something employers are obliged to do in case, in fact, you end up in a situation where redundancy turns out to be unfair because you didn't instead furlough people. I think I totally agree with that. I think some evidence of having applied your mind as an employer to that issue is important. So yeah, just to think of it as an alternative and document why you have chosen redundancy over furlough, I think is going to be really important for employers if that's the decision they are making. John, did you have anything else to add on from the sort of practical or payroll side? On the practical side, we're still a bit lacking in information. Uh, we, we know what's going to be coming. I mean, for now, you've obviously got to actually furlough people to be able to claim later. But then in terms of actually making a claim, the issue they've got is that the revenue HMRC systems are set up uh, for you to pay them rather than them to pay you. So they're trying to get um, something in place for the money to go in the opposite direction. Ultimately, there's going to be an online portal which appears. Um, there's then various information that you're supposed to upload to the portal. So things like the number of employees and the, the period they're being furloughed for, that, those sorts of things, plus some contact details for the employer organization. Um, but the portal doesn't as yet exist. Um, so for now, really Really, all you can do is get your furloughs in place um, the, the cash flow costs temporarily is on the employer and just wait until the facility to claim back comes online. Thanks and I'm going to be mean and put to John a difficult question that we got in our session earlier about if someone is a higher rate taxpayer and they are furloughed and receiving only the 2,500 per month whether you immediately change their tax code, how you deal with the tax in relation to that, where someone was a higher rate taxpayer and maybe might not be going forward. Yeah, so I, I can only repeat the answer that my colleague gave this morning. Um, and his, his advice was just for now to wait and see, uh, not do anything to change tax codes, but do, do just keep an eye on it. Um, I mean, certainly there could be situations if you're talking about very highly paid employees who are moving down to the two and a half thousand a month an adjustment to the tax code might be necessary at some point uh, i mean ultimately if the tax code does end up being wrong um, it's possible uh, to claim back through self-assessment any excess tax that you've paid so people might get a, a repayment of tax yes stage if it doesn't help them with their immediate cash flow issues but might, no. <laughs> might be some comfort in those circumstances Thanks very much. So we're just going to talk briefly then about the self-employment income support scheme that the government launched, which is essentially intended to be a sort of equivalent to the furlough scheme for those who are self-employed. And it was introduced or it was announced after the furlough scheme and frankly, after quite a lot of pressure on the government from those who are self-employed and basically saying, hang on, you're doing this for employees, but what about those of us who are self-employed? And I think actually the self-employed were the ones who, there are quite a lot of self-employed people who were immediately impacted by this, whose work immediately fell away or who were immediately having contracts terminated as soon as the um, 
as soon as the social distancing measures were introduced. What they've suggested or what they've proposed is that they're going to offer a taxable grant worth 80% of trading profits up to a maximum of £2,500 per month for the next three months, which, like the furlough scheme, may be extended. You can apply if you're self-employed or a member of a partnership. You have to have submitted an income tax self-assessment tax return for the tax year 2018 to 2019. And that's one of the key issues with this scheme is that it's not applicable to people who have recently become self-employed who haven't completed a tax return for that 18, 19 year. So if you've become self-employed in the last few months, the scheme is of no benefit to you whatsoever. They are extending the deadline for completing your tax return. So if you are, if you have been self-employed for that time, but have been late completing your tax return, you will still benefit. And really importantly, it's only available where trading profits are £50,000 or less. And so those in the sort of more higher paid bracket will not be able to benefit from the scheme. John, did you have anything to say on the sort of tax position or practical issues on the self-employed scheme? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it might be worth highlighting. There is what some people might see as a point of unfairness about this, which is that it's only available to people who are realising, and this is a tax term, self-employed trading profits. And that wouldn't include someone who, for perfectly good commercial reasons, has decided to operate their business through a company, for example, to give them limited liability protection. Because then in, in tax terms, the nature of what comes out of their company is, is a salary, um, probably only a small salary in almost all cases. So perhaps limited ability to claim under the employed scheme. Um, and then the bulk of it will come out as, as dividends. Uh, but dividends don't count as self-employed trading profits for the purposes of claiming under this scheme. So people who, are, uh, who have chosen for, for valid commercial reasons to use a company for limited liability protection are not in the best position. I think that's right. I think there's a real gap. And again, I wonder if it's one that is being sort of talked about quite a lot. And I wonder if it is a gap that the government will plug at some point. Because sort of sole directors of personal service companies get no benefit from this i mean there are other ways that they can get some benefits in terms of universal credit and things like that but it's not you know these these specific support schemes will be no use to them and the other issue for those people is that they they might want to consider furloughing themselves but it's very difficult to furlough when you're the only person in the business because then what happens to the business essentially there's no business there there is some guidance on what you can do as a sole director if you are in those if you are furloughed and whether you can do any work and i think what the position is is that you can do you can carry out some key director's duties like for example filing reporting accounts for the company but you can't do sort of more substantive work as it was we discussed earlier for your for the company you can't do anything which generates income for the employer and so i think those kinds of people are in a really difficult position and i think again it's really unsatisfactory that, that the position is not clear for those people yeah, and I, I just to add, maybe I'm a little more pessimistic on this, but it, I think it would be quite practically difficult for the government to do anything about uh, people in that position, particularly if they've been taking their money as dividends, because in tax terms, it's quite easy to say you can do something to replace employment income, or you can do something to replace self-employed trading profits. But if you then do something to replace dividends, where on earth do you draw the line with that? Because there'll be all sorts of people who aren't, who are just passive shareholders sitting there picking up dividend income. Before yeah. they announced the self-employed scheme, <laughs> everyone was like, well, yes, but it's very complicated. And actually then they came up with something reasonably simple. I, I agree with you. I'm not sure that there was quite such a simple solution to the problem of the sole director, but I do think, hope that the government will at least consider what, what they might be able to do in that regard. 
Um, someone's asked a question about what if the 2018-2019 income was more than 50k, but your 2019-2020 income will be less than 50k. My understanding, and John, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, is that it's an average over three years, or uh, uh, if you don't have three years, it's what you earned in the last year. That's exactly right, yes. Yeah. So I, I don't think you could say, uh, for example, my self-employed trading profits are, are going to go down because of coronavirus. And, and if you say going down, that implies there is a, a higher prior period to look at. And, and therefore, I can claim because they're going down. Unfortunately, I don't think that would work. No, you need to have been earning less than 50 previously. The notable thing for me is the fact that, that self-employed people, just on your point about going down, because they are allowed to keep trading, keep working and keep making profit whilst they also benefit from the scheme which obviously employed people are not and then the only other thing I wanted to mention about the self-employed scheme is um will be obvious to many people but obviously remember that partners are self-employed so LLP members so in a lot of LLPs LLP members are sort of day-to-day perhaps treated like senior employees but in reality they are self-employed if they're doing their tax returns but don't sort of mistake salaried partners for self-employed and vice versa so salaried partners who are technically payee even if they're called partners will be eligible for furlough self-employed people who are llp members are not employees and therefore will be eligible for the self-employed assistance scheme rather than furlough i think that we don't have any other questions and what we would say is we're very happy to take questions directly afterwards we won't be able to answer every question because some might be too complicated or too detailed but we'll certainly do what we can and obviously if anyone wants to get in touch with us to, to discuss something in more detail then we're very happy to do that but do feel free to send us any questions related to anything that you've heard today and if we can answer it um, we will do so. Thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you so much to John for giving up your time and expertise and for helping us out on some of the tricky questions that we just were being faced with last week when we did a few of these, but we just didn't have the expertise and knowledge to answer on the tax and payroll issues. And look out for our alerts because we will potentially be doing more of these as the situation develops and also as people share their experiences of how this is operating in practice and we hope to be able to bring you some helpful insights on that basis as well and get in touch if there's anything else you want to talk to us about thanks very much for listening 